Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A's. It's Thursday afternoon, so hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up are a couple of questions from Jason Guffey. Starting us off, they just got a RetroTINK 4K in the mail and they're curious about BFI. So do I think there's any benefit of using the Tink's BFI versus the OLEDs or vice versa? So I think that's something that everybody needs to try on their own display. Now, obviously, if you have a 120 hertz display without built-in BFI, then that's a no-brainer. Use the use the tanks and see how it works for you. Maybe it'll be too dark. Maybe with HDR enabled, it'll be perfect. You're going to have to just try it. What I would definitely do, though, is do some experiments with the Tink in 1080p 120 mode and then set it to 4K60 and try the different BFI modes on your TV and see how they look. Maybe they'll look better. Maybe they'll look way worse. And depending on the input resolution and a lot of other things, it might actually look better to use the Tink or not. So you're just going to have to try it and kind of see for yourself what's going to work the best for that setup. Uh, next question is, what about BFI with 30 frames per second games? Once again, you have to just try it to see. It could be, now I actually don't think I've ever tried 30 FPS games specifically for this test, but in complete speculation, it could be something that games that are locked to 30 FPS might look great, especially if it's like a, one of those PlayStation 2 games that you could use Mike's new pull-down mode in order to essentially make it progressive scan. But if it's one of those things that's all over the place, maybe not. Now, I vaguely remember playing like Star Fox that way, and it was totally fine. And that game is all over the place. You know, that drops down to like 10 frames per second sometimes. And it was totally fine because the game is still refreshing at 60 frames per second, even though it's being rendered at a lower frame per second. Um, I'm really oversimplifying that. So anybody who's an expert who, you know, who's now just feels like uh, nails on a chalkboard when I said that, I'm just oversimplifying for the interest of everybody's time here. But essentially, you could still have what would mimic the look of a CRT with blanking out the screen between uh, between each frame. So you're going to have to just try it to see, which is a cheesy answer. But if you've already bought it, then I'm probably suggesting that you're going to do something, suggesting something that you would have done anyway. So this is going to be some fun nerd experiments here. Uh, lastly from Jason is a game room related question. They have all of their uh, component video consoles using HD retrovision cables into an Xtron crosspoint, but they're not sure where exactly in the room all of these devices are going to be yet. If they were going to do a long cable run, would they be better off keeping the component video signals analog and just buying lots of HD retrovision cables, meaning the extension cables that they have? Uh, or would plugging them into the switch and having that have the extension cables, like what's the best bet? 
So obviously with analog video cables, the shorter, the better. However, Steve from HD Retrovision did a probably unhealthy amount of testing in signal drop-off when you're daisy-chaining their extension cables together. And I think three, three extension cables was where you started to visually notice a difference on screen. But what I would suggest from a cost point of view is keep the switch close to the consoles and then kind of take a total look at your setup. So let's just say you have all of your consoles in one corner, and then maybe you would take two HD Retrovision cables, one uh, RCA to RCA and then one extension, and then just run that very long cable run over to the Tink 4K next to your other setup. Maybe that would be it. So you're actually only having one very long uh, analog video cable. Or maybe it's something where it's the opposite. You have a bunch of HDMI devices and you could run all of those over to the switch and then have your Tink 4K sitting on top of the switch or something like that. So you're having long digital runs. The only thing I will add is do not mess around with uh, 4K 120 or even really 4K 60 at 422 or 444. Don't mess around with very long cables unless you're gonna drop some cash on some optical HDMI cables that are, make sure they're 8K certified you know, just to make sure you don't have any issues with that. Um, so said differently, if you have a 1080p 60 console and you have an 8K rated 50 foot HDMI cable, you're probably fine. You're probably not going to get any dropouts. But if you start sending 4K 60 that far, you might very well get some dropouts and especially 4K 120. So I would look at the total setup of the room and just kind of figure out what what's best for you. Um, I always go through stuff like this. I had just finished that setup behind me when I completely tore it apart because I have to keep unfortunately reminding myself that I'm not a gamer. I am a developer or somebody that helps developers. So having a perfectly wired setup where all I have to do is press a button to start gaming or watching a video or something is amazing. And I end up playing more because I spend less time setting stuff up. But then doing all my tests is a nightmare. So it's I'm back to basically just plugging in one thing at a time, even though I have an amazing cross point sitting right there. So, you know, consider what's best for your total setup and what's going to and what things you're going to be tinkering with versus what things you're, you want stationary. But hopefully I was able to point you in somewhat the right direction. Next up, Mark Smith wants to know if we'll ever see the likes of retro tink tech built into a mainstream TV or monitor that is gaming focused. So this is a fun thing to speculate about. Um, my guess and my speculation would be no, never in a TV, because then people who are just buying a regular TV would be paying for tech that 99% of the people who buy it won't need. And in fact, I think that all TVs should just get rid of all of their analog video inputs, period. Save money for everybody, even if it's only a couple of bucks, less uh, support for TV companies, but also less improper scaling of everything, especially nowadays when those cheap... The, the converters that I say never use for video games, those cheap composite and S-Video to HDMI adapters, do a perfectly fine job for DVDs and VHS and stuff like that. You know, certainly not pro level, but if you're just like, oh, I found a VCR with a stack of old tapes from when I was a kid, yeah, why not use those? But how many people are actually doing that that buy these TVs? So for TVs, I would say no, and I don't even know if I would want it. I would say keep it digital inputs only and have people go to external tech that's designed for this stuff. Now, a monitor that's gaming focused, I think that 
a four by three, and this, once again, this is fantasy world right here. I might as well be talking about this on an OnlyFans video, but I think a four by three slightly curved OLED with the Tink 4K built right into it would be amazing. And I think that's something that people who have arcade machines, especially, you know, rare candy cabs and stuff like that, where CRTs are getting really hard to manage, I think that would actually sell. And people might say, well, that's $1,500. Who's buying one of those? Who's spending $1,500 to completely refurbish the chassis on all of these arcade machines? Lots and lots of people. And also manufacturing OLEDs versus things like micro LEDs is less expensive, but still very expensive. So I think if somebody were to make a small run of production now with something like a Tink 4K built in, it'd probably be a $3,000 20-inch monitor. But who knows? Maybe there's going to be some kind of medical device that needs a, uh, a 4x3 4K. So instead of 20... Uh, 3840, it would be like 2880 by 2160 or something, but whatever, a 4x3 4K TV that does 120 hertz, if if some other industry needed that, digital signage, medical, whatever else, I actually think it wouldn't be too hard for a company to step up and manufacture exactly what you're talking about. Basically just have internal, uh, talk to Mike, license the technology, have him send you, you know, uh, have them basically just send you uh, internal only, you bolt it inside. I think that would be amazing. So we'll see. Um, I don't know if anything like that could ever happen, but if any of you ever see something like a 4x3 OLED, especially 120 hertz, popping up in other industries, then let me know and I'll just I'll pass the info on to all the right people. I've mentioned it to some of my older contacts from back in the day who make displays, and they all were basically like, try to see what's out there. You know, maybe there's one that you could use. Maybe there's one you could piggyback on. And then the part shortage killed everything. Greg from Laser Bear knows that more than anybody. He tried a lot to do. I don't know if anybody saw his 20-inch LCD monitors that he showed, uh, showed off at some expos, but they were really great. And he was going to get them for decent prices. And then everything just stock dried up and they stopped making them. So that project might actually be canceled. So please, if you're in another industry and you see these displays, just fit, you know, snap a picture of the model, snap a picture of it, let me know, and I'll see if I could find where they come from and get it. But my gut's telling me until an industry orders 100,000 of them for something else, we're not going to be able to get anything like that. Next up, Nick recently bought an original white PC engine, which only has RF out. They live in Europe, so while the RF works fine on their TV tuner card in their PC, they can't get the RF to work on their CRT. The CRT supposedly supports NTSC, but the PC engine is probably using a channel their TV won't scan to, like the original Famicom. Most likely correct. So what would be the, currently, the current best solution to get either RGB or composite out for this? So the EDFX from Crix is definitely it. it. It gets both RGB and composite via a Genesis 2 mini DIN. So all you would need to do is buy a properly built Genesis 2 cable for it. And that's all you would need. You'd be able to get both signals. It's uh, inexpensive compared to other solutions. It's good quality output. Plus you have the bonus of if you ever get a Turbo EverDrive Pro, you would be able to get stereo CD audio using that as well. So that is absolutely the best solution at the moment for a plug and play thing like that. You could do internal mods and that's absolutely fine. Um, but then, you know, the to total cost is what I would really look at. And you might spend 
quite a lot more if you have to pay somebody to install it on something that would be an amazing, you know, solution. There's nothing wrong with that, but just plugging it right in the EDFX directly into the back might be all you need. So I always try to push plug and play solutions when needed or when available, especially if they're high quality, just because what if something else happens to that PC engine? Even something silly, like, you know, you drop something on it and it cracks it in half directly through the center of a chip. So it's impossible to, to do anything with it. You know, wouldn't you rather just pull that EDFX out the back and, you know, cry over your cracked console, but buy another. So it's up to you, but internal mods would be fine as long as you get a good board and have it properly installed. But just plugging the EDFX in the back would be almost as good in almost all cases. Um, there's the issue with RGB color versus composite, but if you just get a cheap composite cable, you could kind of deal with that as well. If there's ever a game that the color palette really matters, uh, but that's not really something you're gonna have you're gonna easily deal with with an internal mod anyway. You would have to go to digital for most of that. So um, I really wouldn't overthink it. I would pick up the EDFX and go from there. Also, my apologies. Nick said that they looked at the Turbo Graphics page on Retro RGB and couldn't find a good solution. I forgot to update that page after the EDFX came out. So I owe Nick and everybody an apology because I have just fallen so far behind on the main pages. What I really need to do is somehow hit the pause button in life, freeze time, and then just spend like a month just redoing the whole website, uh, linking things over to the wiki where the guides are now, um, redoing all of the stuff to make sure each page has my favorite equipment on each. I just... There's not enough hours in the day, so I, I'm really sorry about that. Also, thank you very much for the kind words, and I'm really glad you enjoyed the Power Supply podcast. There was so much good info in there from so many smart people. I, I Even though I, I knew the answers to some of those, I still really loved hearing everybody else's description, and I, I obviously learned a lot as well. I do hope people take it seriously, though, because there were a few people that were like, ah, it's fine, I'm still going to buy this new thing that's out that's probably definitely not going to work right, but it's, it looks cool, so why not? So I'm glad to hear that at least some people were taking it seriously. So anyway, uh, links for everything that you need for the EDFX is in the description. Next up, PS3 Inquisition wanted to follow up on the discussion last week we were having about running the PS2 game Ibarra in the original 240p resolution as opposed to 480i, and apparently patches were already made, or even easier, if you just get a free hex editor, you could open it up and just change a couple of things to make your own, or hack your own very easily. You don't need to be a coder or anything like that. I certainly am not. Um, so thank you to PS3 Inquisition, because that would absolutely be the best solution. Patching the game, have it run now natively at 240p, and you would just need a way to boot any kind of PS2 homebrew. So thanks very much to PS 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 Qui, jeez, PS3 Inquisition for reminding me about that. Uh, and I'll leave a link to the forum thread for anybody who's interested in doing that. Next up, Captain Retro has a question about routing analog signals into their RetroTank 4K. And I actually am going to have a video on this fairly soon because... Some of the basic stuff that you think would be easy is actually even easier than you would imagine with the RT4K. You just would need to know initial setup. So I'm going to give you a very brief rundown now, but you'll have visual examples and all that when this video eventually comes out. But the D sub connector in back actually accepts S video, component video, RGBS, RGBHV, and composite video right through it. So all you would have to do is wire your cross point so that Y and C of S video go into the proper inputs of the D sub, which I think is red and blue or red and green. 
I can't remember, but it's definitely listed somewhere on the Tink 4K page because that's what I have listed here. So listed, that's what I have wired here or had wired here until I pulled it all apart. Essentially, all of my consoles went into the cross point and then the cross point had one BNC to VGA cable. That's it, just one cable running into the D sub input of the Tink 4K. And you would obviously have to switch inputs. So the input button, the HD15 D sub connector has all of the different subcategories underneath it, but you would just have to select the input that matched the signal and that's it. Now, the only issue would be comp uh, composite video because I think it, Chroma and Composite are on the same pin. So you would have to either have a separate cable run for Composite. You could run Composite to the uh, RCA jack and back instead. Um, there's, you might, your setup doesn't seem to need Composite, so this might be a non-issue at all. But for anybody else listening, I would just handle Composite video separately in that case. Uh, for me personally, the way I had it wired was... RGB, S, or HV, or component video were always pretty straightforward because RGB would always be on their corresponding colors, even for YPBPR. The colors of the cable were the same. I would have YC set to, I believe it's red and green, and then I would run composite through blue. And that way, each you know input one could always be S video and composite from my CDI or my VHS or whatever else. And that way I could run that output all to the D sub connector, but I have another output of the cross point running just the blue line to the RCA input and back to run composite through it. So that way everything's still in back. I just would have to switch inputs for composite. So all of this stuff is doable and it's actually very easy and it's, it might even be cheaper because you could do use less cables and all of that, but it's complicated to talk about without visual examples because if you haven't done any of this stuff before, your head might be spinning like, wait a minute, run composite through blue, but chroma through red, like what, what are you talking about? And so that's one of those things where once I am able to show visual examples of this stuff, it'll probably be easier for most people who haven't done it before to click and go, oh, that's, that's what he means. Uh, but since you already have it wired, you probably already get it. So Captain Retro, let me know if you want me to elaborate anymore, but I will be showing this off at a video at some point, hopefully very soon, because I want to I want to put out more RT4K videos, because while, yes, it is this awesome, complicated, wonderful beast, it's also very easy to use, and some of the steps that you could take to do stuff like this are a little work, but not a lot, and certainly easier than in all previous scalers before it. So uh, if anybody has any more suggestions of stuff they want to see in that those types of videos, let me know. But I definitely want to jump into that as soon as I can to start helping people out because I think once more people kind of see all of the stuff come together, they're going to realize how easy it is to integrate in your full setup without the need for some crazy custom switch contraption thingy. You could just use what you already have and just maybe buy another cable or two, but already have it nicely integrated. Next up, Tony Escobar has an 8x8 Extron crosspoint. All eight inputs have RGB connected with one single RGB output going to a PVM 14L5. Their Zenith HealthView CRT is right next to the PVM, but it only accepts composite video. So how would they route a second output from the crosspoint to be composite video? So here's where things would get a little bit complicated. The cross points can handle composite video on the RGB lines, but they can't handle it on the sync line. So if it was something like, 
you were using a GSCART switch, you could have all sync on composite video fully shielded RGB SCART cables, have one SCART output going to your PVM using composite video as sync, and then the other SCART output, you could just break out compo or composite video from the sync line with those little cheap adapters they have, also left and right audio. So that would be a good solution if you were using a GSCART, but since you already have a cross point, you can't route composite video through the sync lines. So what you could do is if you really loved your cross point setup, you could try to um, have some kind of converter for the second output. Now, I actually just got a prototype, which I hope is the final prototype of an RGB to S-Video and composite converter that does a pretty brilliant job on composite. You have that, to use a variable capacitor to tune it in, but it's really easy. You don't need test patterns or anything. You fire up the game you want to play, you put a little screwdriver in and turn the knob until it looks good, and it's 99% as good as original composite video. That would be the perfect use for this. You would get yourself a BNC to SCART cable with um, a resistor on the end, uh, on, the, on the sync line, uh, like any time you go to and from a cross point to SCART equipment. And then you would plug that into this, and then you would be able to take the composite video output of this into your Zenith. So it would need a conversion from RGB to composite. I don't know when this is going to be released. I hope soon. I think we need to wait for production samples and then they're going to be up for sale. So the, the final prototype was awesome. It was one needed one little change that even I could do. It was so easy. And then the production samples are coming. So I don't know anything else. I don't know price. I don't know when they're coming. I do know that Greg from Laser Bear made a very nice case for it that uh, I have sitting on the prototype right now. So that's what I would use personally. Now, there are other things that you could do. You could get uh, all custom cables from your consoles that also break out composite video, except then you have to buy all new cables. And then how would you switch composite video? You could also buy a bigger cross point and have each console have two, uh, two ports on the cross point, one RGB, one composite. But that's, you know, that's kind of why I like converters like the one that's hopefully coming out soon, because at first glance, people are like, by the way, I have no idea what the price is. I'm going to I'm going to say a thousand dollars. It's definitely not going to be a thousand dollars, but I'm just going to make up an astronomical price. But somebody might say, well, why would you spend a thousand dollars to convert RGB to composite when you can get a composite cable for a dollar on AliExpress? Well, if you want a fully automated system, how much would you have to spend getting all new cables for each console, a bigger cross point, rewiring everything, reswit? So it's one of those things that if you do have to drop a little bit of money on it, you might actually save a ton of money compared to getting a whole new setup. I also think I think scenarios like yours are going to be the perfect, perfect example for this. And uh, it should work with light guns as well. So imagine if you have your amazing 14L5 for gaming, but you end up picking up a 36-inch TV or even your 21-inch TV for light gun games, then getting this might probably be worth it anyway just for the ability. So... My suggestion to you would be to hold out for that and see what happens. Uh, you could try some of the ones that are out there now, but composite's always going to look a little funky, and that's a really nice CRT, so you might want to just wait and get this converter. But fingers crossed this comes out quick, because I, I think this is something that more people than you would imagine would want to buy this thing. It's more than just a tool in your toolbox. I think there's going to be a lot of people just like Tony who, who are going to see it and immediately click. I think there's going to be a lot more people that troll it that ask why anybody would buy something like that. 
And those kind of people drive me crazy because it's a very self-centered look. Um, so unfortunately, we're all going to have to remind the trolls that they're trolls when this comes out. But I think there's going to be a lot of people like myself and Tony that'll see it and go, that'll actually save me a lot of money. And once again, it's not going to be $1,000. I was just being a wise ass. The Remora wants to know if you're using a mister with the RetroTINK 4K, do you think there's any reason to purchase the analog video version of the I.O. board? No, not at all if you're only going to HDMI equipment. So if you're talking about going from the Mr. to the Tink 4K to either a flat panel TV, a capture card, or both, there's zero reason to get the analog I.O. board. Just save yourself some money. Not throwing shade at the analog I.O. board, just trying to save you some cash. That said, if you need simultaneous output, so at the exact same time, one output's going to an HDMI device, whether it's the Tink 4K or direct to a capture card, whatever else, and analog video going to a CRT at the same time, then you're going to require the analog I.O. board for simultaneous output at different resolutions. If you only need one output at a time, so sometimes you pick up your mister and bring it to your CRT, other times you unplug it and plug it back into the Tink 4K, you also don't need an analog I.O. board. Uh, you could just use direct video solutions if you want. And I'm actually going to have a video coming out hopefully very soon, more than halfway done with it, I think, that show my favorite cases, the new models that are coming out for them, and basically discussing exactly this scenario. So uh, I don't mean to make this a complicated answer, uh, but you didn't mention a CRT at all. So I'm assuming you're talking about digital only. So my answer would be, you don't need anything. Um, now, I do have one more opinion, but that seems to tie in in your next question. Um, the Remora generally owns almost all of the consoles, that the original consoles that they want, and predominantly use Mr. for arcade gaming. So given what's currently public about Mars, should they just hold off and see where that project goes? My suggestion, with all of the love and no disrespect at all, is if you want a game now, buy what's available now. In fact, you might be able to just buy a D10 Nano, a RAM stick, and a cheap USB hub. In fact, follow that getting started in 10 minutes video that I did and just use a bare solution with no case and just see what you think. Maybe it's going to be fine. Maybe Mars is going to come out and you're going to sell the DE10. You could definitely be able to sell those for not much loss at all. Uh, they're not out of stock anymore, but they're still, you can't get them cheap anywhere. So if you bought that today and Mars came out a month from now, then you might be able to just say, all right, well, I lost a couple of bucks on it, whatever. But also, I'm not sure if Mars is going to be able to, on launch day, have all of the arcade cores that you're looking for. Maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe it's going to get delayed. Maybe they're going to find most of them but run into issues. This stuff is really really hard. I'm saying this as compliments to the Mars team, not insults. I mean, doing what they're doing is not in any way easy. So you might end up still using a mister for the first month or two that you own a Mars just to be able to get all of the cores that you want or not. Maybe it's going to release tomorrow fully loaded. I, I don't, I don't think it's going to release tomorrow, by the way, but just being facetious here. So I would just buy that. I also would buy it because I truly think when people see the video that's about to be released, they're going to understand why my favorite cases for Mr. are my favorite kits and cases. They're very, um, they're, they're a lot different from a bunch of little reasons, things that people might overlook right away. So please check out that video when it comes out. I really hope it's going to be out in a week or two, but I'm, I have to finish it. Plus, we're still waiting for stock of everything to come in so they could go on sale. So yeah, I would. my suggestion to you would be buy a D10 right now. You can get them from DigiKey. 
Um, I'll, I'll leave a link to that for anybody interested. Not an affiliate link, but you know, whatever. It's the cheapest place that I know to get it at the moment. So pick up a DE10, then also watch that video I did and grab a RAM stick and a cheap USB hub from somewhere and just start there. I wouldn't even upgrade the micro SD at the moment if all you're doing is arcade. Just run update all. Uh, do only arcade games and in fact if you want to make a dedicated arcade setup out of this even if it's all just going through the tink 4k i'll leave a link to another video i did i swear i'm not being one of those annoying youtubers that's like please watch all of my videos like i could sit here and talk for a half hour or i could tell you to watch the videos that i spent hundreds of hours making to present this to you hopefully a lot easier than me just rambling so check out all of those things see what you think but i would just start with a bare de10 and you're probably going to end up getting the updated hdmi only case that's about to be released or one of the other ones you'll see soon i promise Next up, Joaquin Coelho wants to know how to route S-Video through the D-Sub VGA connector in the back of the RetroTINK 4K. So all you're going to need is a pin converter. So just the S-Video port in that's routed to the correct pins on the D-Sub connector. You'd probably want something short so that way if the shielding isn't so good on that adapter, you don't have to worry about interference. However, I haven't tried those yet. As silly as that might sound, I've been running everything through the Crosspoint like I talked about, so I haven't tried any of those cheap Amazon adapter cables. And I'm about to order a whole bunch of those to see which ones are pinned correctly, if any of them have any kind of interference, which should be pretty easy. I could just run SNES Super Mario World first level through it, and if you get you know the crazy vertical stuff on there or the horizontal stuff, then it's not shielded. So I'll, I'll be testing that before I do the, the next upcoming Tink video that I'm working on. For now, what I would say is use the front port just, just for now. I know most people would like a, a nice streamlined way to connect it to the back. And I'll ask Mike as well if he knows for one that for sure will definitely work. I'll drop a link in this description. But if not, I am definitely going to be buying a whole bunch of this stuff so I could figure out which ones work. And that way you could just connect this directly to the VGA port route S video right in and not even worry. And remember too, that the audio is either a 3.5 millimeter jack. Uh, so you would just need an RCA to 3.5 millimeter cable or converter. Those are cheap and available everywhere. Or you could just use another audio input if you, that's how you need to do it. So uh, I wish I had an answer for you now. And it's just, there's so much going on that I wanted to do all of this before that original introducing video came out. But now's the time for me to swing back around, make that getting started with a RetroTINK 4K video and go over stuff like this that is actually very, very easy if you know which is the right one to buy, if you know which one's shielded. So hopefully I could have a lot of links ready for people so that they could just watch the video and probably skim through it. Like, doesn't apply to me, doesn't apply to me. Ooh, S-Video through the D-Sub, let me watch this part. Okay, cool, or, you know, that kind of, kind of thing. So yeah, I'm going to do the dirty YouTuber thing and tell you to wait for an upcoming video to get the, the real answer. But I will add the link if I find one that works beforehand. Um, but for now, just use the front S-Video port just to hold yourself over. Or maybe try a couple. Buy a few uh, just cheap converter cables on Amazon and go from there. And remember, you don't need signal conversion. In fact, you don't want signal conversion at all. You want the original signal. You're just simply taking chroma, luma, and ground and routing them to the pins on the D-sub connector that Mike has programmed to accept chroma, luma, ground when it's in S-video mode. So no converters at all. We're talking like a $4 cable to do this. I just got to figure out what's the right one. So let me know if you find it before me, but if not, I'll definitely have it in that video coming up.
Next up, Adam Adam Ant is about to purchase RetroTink 4K whenever they come back up for sale, and they want to know the best way to integrate it into their HDMI-based setup. So a mixture of HDMI-modded consoles, analog consoles, or even modern consoles like the Xbox Series X. So the correct answers to these are not going to work today. The best answer by far would be to tell you to get a 24 by 8 HDMI matrix switch that could support up to 4K 120. That does not exist in the consumer world. And if you find a pro version, it's probably going to be like five or $10,000. So that would be the right answer, but that's not going to be the answer I would give anybody. The next thing that would be a good answer if you find a compatible one is to get an HDMI splitter and just stick it on the end of your current setup. Send one HDMI output directly to your TV then send the other HDMI output through the Tink 4K into your TV. If you're playing a game that has signals that uh, your console or that the Tink 4K can't accept, like 4K 60, just turn off the Tink 4K and use the port on your TV that goes directly from the switches. Now, the problem with that is a couple of different ways, or a couple of different problems with that setup. First, do you have a stereo, like some kind of AV receiver hooked up to this? Are you using ARC? Are you routing it through the receiver? If that's the case, you could use the same analogy, but use two inputs on the receiver to your TV or kind of any way that you have it done now. That is definitely going to overcomplicate things a little bit. But the other more important issue is some HDMI splitters just aren't really working right with the Tink 4K. And it's 99% sure I'm, it's something like one of the cheap chipsets that's used might be sending some kind of weird issue to the Tink 4K. I don't know, Mike's still looking into it, I'm still testing it. So you would have to find a switch that's definitely compatible, but then you run into the same issue you always run into when you're talking about cheap Amazon or AliExpress HDMI equipment. Is the one I bought today going to be the same one that you buy tomorrow from the same link in the same store? Very often the answer is no. So I that's one of the reasons I haven't put out another HDMI video yet is I've bought stuff recently that didn't work or worked fine and somebody else bought the same one and had completely different uh, results from that. So unfortunately at the moment, it's kind of hard to figure out what to do. So I would say to you, figure out if you have any HDMI splitters already available to you. If so, like if you have one in your drawer, if you have one for another setup that you're using, try that first and see if adding the splitter would work for you. Uh, if so, great, just leave it. And in fact, if it works with all the consoles that you're looking for, then I would replace the one that you took in the other location and leave the working one hooked up to the Tink 4K. If it doesn't, just hold off. We're on it. I'm testing so many different things. Mike's testing so many different things. I'm going broke testing HDMI crap. I wonder if my Amazon account's going to get suspended for returning so much stuff that doesn't work, but maybe I should just start taking cell phone footage and explaining that I'm not, I really am trying to find stuff that I'm trying to tell people to buy. So I'm not wasting Amazon's time by doing this, but it's really hard to find cheap consistent HDMI equipment. That's why so many people with um, no limits on their budget might just go and get some of the HD Fury stuff or some of the way more expensive HDMI equipment because you're going to pay 10 times the amount, but it might work every time. So, but I don't want to tell you to go buy something that I don't, I haven't even tested. It. I don't even know if that'll work. So I'm really sorry that you're getting a cheesy answer you, Adam and everybody else. But at the moment, try whatever splitter that you already have. If it works, great. If not, 
just hold off. I, I really am testing all the time. I'm talking to Mike about it, and I really hope we could find a solid, a solid source for these. It's at the point now where if I did find a solid source, I would probably reach out to the company and reach out to one of the retro gaming stores and just see if we could work out a deal for them to buy 500 of them or something just so we have at least one reliable source until they run out. So I don't know. It's a pain in the butt. And uh, it's not, I don't really know if it's anybody's fault. It would be easy to blame these companies, but they're just trying their best to get this equipment out and keep it at that price point. And if you wanted to be an ass, you could blame Mike, but how are you going to ask him to try and test every single chipset and every manufacturer for every HDMI splitter out there? Big companies can't do that, especially not just one person. So just sit tight, and I'm sorry for the really horrible answer. Next up, Retro YPVPR said for some reason they could no longer get their PlayStation 2 to work with their OSSC. It works fine with their CRT using the same component cables. They can't think of anything else they could have changed, and they tried different profiles and connecting it directly. Any thoughts? Yeah, first and foremost, do you have any other component video consoles and cables, you know, so at the very least a different cable, to try with the OSSC? If so, that might determine if maybe the ports went bad in the OSSC, something broke. Um, you want to just try to troubleshoot each point of failure first. So you already tried the cables because if it works on your CRT, it can't be the PS2 or your cables. So what else? And you said you tried connecting it directly. So already good nerding. But what's the only other thing that you could test then? the component video ports on the OSSC. So you could also try, if you don't have anything else for component video, you could try cheap adapters that route uh, the red, green, and blue RCA through the VGA input and back. Um, that's not the best solution for gaming, but it'd certainly help for testing. If it worked through that, but not the component video, then that would work. Uh, so yeah, I would just try to nail it down and see where the issue is. And that might just be it. Maybe something happened to the OSSC. If yours is really old, you never know. You know, electronics go bad after time, especially if uh, if you're like me and you're constantly plugging and unplugging stuff into them. So I would just try testing that first and then follow back up and see. Uh, but maybe, I mean, if you also, if you're using really cheap component video cables, it could be like a finicky connection on the inside. I had an S-video cable that I tested and it, it was monster brand and yeah i know i know they're mostly ripoffs but they're still not bad cables and i had a monster brand s video cable i plugged it in and it worked and i brought it across the room i plugged it in and it was only black and white and it drove me nuts for a couple of days because i was trying to figure out where the point of failure was turns out when i finally took the cable apart the connection had broke and when you wiggled it one way the connection uh, was touched and then you wiggled at the other and it broke the connection. So that's why it was working on one and not the other it just happened to be where the cable sat when I plugged it in. So if you're using really cheap component cables, definitely get the HD retrovision ones because they're not expensive at all. And they're as good as you can get. So uh, I'll leave a link to the PS2 page that has links to those. But yeah, I would try troubleshooting that next. You did great steps up to this point so far. So just keep going and see if you could figure out where the problem actually is. Next up, Rent Optional was looking for more information on the SNES light gun that was actually used for real military training. They had talked about a video that was released uh, a while back that had an ex-military guy who actually trained with it 25 to 30 years ago show them how to use it along with the corresponding ROM for the SNES. So I don't know 
anything about this. I've just seen pictures and heard the folklore of it. I've certainly never used one. I may have walked by one at an expo, but obviously, I mean, they, they sell for a lot of money, so I'm not, they're not going to let me just pick it up and start playing with it. So yeah, I don't know anything about it at all. Um, I just kind of skimmed through that video just so I could know which one you're referencing. And I'll leave a link to that video in the description for anybody that's wondering. But yeah, I don't have any info on it whatsoever. What I would love is Ian, historical nerd, who's in the military, to do a full in-depth video on that. I think that would be really great. I think it would be it would be very cool. Maybe that's what this video is too. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just repeating what's already in here, but I like Ian, so whatever. I'm still gonna still gonna give him a shout out here. So yeah, I, don't, I got nothing on this one. Sorry, Rent, but uh, it seems like a very interesting piece of video game and I guess military history as well. And lastly, Dustin Madison is still planning their upcoming New York City trip and wants to know if I had personal recommendations for things like hot dog spot, pizza, delicatessen, or anything else random that I personally say is a must if you bring friends from out of town and you want to treat them to something I feel it could only get there. So the problem with this is I haven't lived in Manhattan in two and a half years. So any of the stuff that I would frequent that I loved might be gone or might be completely different. So the the only one of my personal recommendations I would say is if you like cookies, go to the place called Schmackeries. Um, I don't know if it's still there, I, but if it is, it's worth going to. It's actually not my favorite cookie, but I've never had a bad cookie there, and it was always worth the experience. Even if I was like, oh, I don't think I'd get this one again, like, it's it's worth it. But other than that, I would look up stuff that's famous that people talk about. Because living in the city is one thing. And my favorite part about living in the city was that I could walk out of my house, turn left or right, go to the end of the block, cross the street, and either one of those pizza places has pizza that's so far better than any pizza within an hour drive of where I live now that it is it is not even comparison. There's just so much better than the pizza where I live. But is it the best pizza in New York? Yeah, probably not, but it's almost certainly going to be better than pizza where, where all of us live elsewhere than that. So for me personally, just having everything right there was the exciting part. But if you're going to be visiting, I would just look up the famous stuff. People talk about Cat's Deli. People talk about Ray's Pizza. People from the city want to argue that they're not the best or those know-it-alls that have been to the city once for a day that now act like they know everything about it. We all know one of those people. <laughs> so, you know... It, but the thing about going there is you could go there and you could have that food and then you could have that conversation. So if you have that person that's like, oh, it's not the best. You can, well, no, I had the pastrami and I thought it was excellent. Or now you could just you could be watching a YouTube show with your friend and they'll bring up Ray's pizza. And you can be like, I was there. I ate that pizza. And, you know, it may or may not be original Ray's. There's another Ray's. It's like you could you could have those experiences that you hear people talk about. And the pizza is going to be almost surely better than pizza you can get elsewhere, unless you're talking about different styles. Obviously, there are people that like Chicago pizza, which is basically just a, a potato, in a, you know, a round potato, which is fine. I like those, but it's not the same. If you're looking for New York City style pizza, this is the only spot in the world where it's going to taste that good. So yeah, I would definitely do that. And halal carts, look up whichever is 
you know, the hot halal cart of the around Midtown. There used to be one that was super famous that people would line up for an hour to get, you know, their, their Euro or whatever else. I lamb over rice was always my favorite with both red and white sauce. Bring some Pepto-Bismol if you're not used to the red sauce, but yeah. So you don't have to go to that one, but use your head, right? If you're in an area with tons and tons of people and you get something from a halal cart, it's probably going to be excellent. Whereas if you're walking down and you, you cut through an alleyway and there's nobody around and there's just one sad halal cart where all the meat looks like it's been sitting there spinning for a week, skip that one. <laughs> but I, I would really go for the stuff that's a story as well as the taste, because that's kind of one of the unique things about it. But I don't know. Hopefully that was a good enough answer. If I still lived there, I would probably give you exact addresses and things to order off the menu, but I just, I, I can't vouch for something I haven't seen in two and a half years, but I think that could at least get you a fun experience when you go. Well, that's it for this time. If you're new to these Q&As and you want to participate, ask any question you would like. Just please put it in the latest Q&A post wherever it is that you support. So at the moment, the services are Ko-fi, the YouTube subscription, Patreon, and Floatplane. So if you're subscribed on any of those, just go to the Q&A post for wherever you found this video and then just put a comment in that post, not on the YouTube video, but on any of those services. And that's how I do these. The reason I do it that way is, first of all, these are a thank you for everybody who supports. Um, while I do spend a ridiculous amount of time answering questions in the YouTube comments and on social media every day, these specifically are a thank you to everybody who decides to support on those services. So anybody who supports at all on the monthlies can participate. Just uh, do it in the latest Q&A post because the way the services work, I can't really figure out what's an old question on a new post. Plus, as you saw today, I like just kind of scrolling through in real time and answering the questions as if, we, as if we were hanging out somewhere. The questions are very often only on Patreon because that's where by far most of the supporters are, but none of that matters to me. Your support is appreciated. There isn't one better service than the other. There's just an explanation as to why you see so many questions on one service over the other, but there's no favoritism. I love you all equally. So thank you all very much. Uh, and you know, once again, thank you. And I will see you next week.